Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 65. You get what you ask for, kids. On Friday, I said I'd settle for a 2-4 and four road trip for the Brewers, and that's exactly what they delivered. But they salvage a win on Sunday. That Tampa team seems for real. And the Brewers, when they left on this tough road trip, they were in first place. When they come back, they're in first place. Reigning World Series champion Astros at AmFam Field starting tonight. We'll break that down in the NBA the Heat. I got to get my Elaine sound clip. The Heat, my God, the Heat. I mean, what are we watching with this team? They are up 3-0 after they blow the doors off of Boston in Game 3. And it's got Bucks Twitter really second-guessing itself now with the bud firing. We'll talk more about that like we did on Friday. And then the PGA Championship. We did cash one ticket. We cashed the Rory Top 10 ticket. Didn't cash the Xander ticket. The weekend, though, belonged to Michael Block, the club pro who finishes 15th at the PGA Championship. You could not write a movie script. Well, you could have be called Tin Cup. You couldn't write a second movie script that would line up with this better. What a weekend for Michael Block. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20. Gordon, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin! Smash up the middle, face hit the center. Here comes Gomez, around third. A throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws, and intercepted. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. What a tentacle ball! Throws it down. Swinging fly ball. Yeah, the movie would be Tin Cup, wouldn't it? It's not all the same, but a lot of it kind of is. Well, what a weekend for Michael Block. And if that's a name that you didn't know before Thursday, you're like almost everybody else in the United States of America. And if you're like me, you started to catch wind of what this guy was doing on Friday. And then I really started to get locked in on Saturday as his round improved. And then he gave this interview at the end of his Saturday round. And at the end of the interview, they tell him for the first time that he is going to be paired with Rory McIlroy, top five in the world, Rory McIlroy, that he will be paired with him on a Sunday at a major. And then this was his reaction. This video went Found viral. Out. You're paired with Rory tomorrow. What's your reaction to that? <laughs> He's just stunned. Are you serious? Wow. That should be fun. We're going to have a good time. Thank Can't you. believe it. Really? <laughs> oh, boy. All I can do is laugh to himself, and that video was so endearing because he's the everyman, and he said that. He said he represents all of us. He's just a regular guy, a regular golfer. He's 46 years old, and he's been a club pro in Southern California for a long time, and growing up in Sheboygan, I had golf lessons with my buddies at Town and Country here in Sheboygan. There's a club pro there. There's a club pro at almost every golf course. Not every golf course, but a lot of them, especially in our area where there is a lot of golf. And you think of those guys and then in picture one of those guys <laughs> golfing with Rory McIlroy. 
at a major championship on a Sunday, it just blows your mind. And he just put together one of those rounds. There were 20 club pros, and there are club pros at the PGA Championship a lot. Do they cap it at 20? I'm pretty sure they do. And you've got to qualify for it, so you have to have the time to go out and play the tournaments and try to qualify for it. And he did, and several others did. But most club pros don't do a whole lot of anything. They get to go to the tournament. That's sort of the championship for them as a club pro, just getting to play in a major. But Michael Block, he got the qualification to go, and he put together one of those runs. And he just started to gain steam and confidence, and the crowd got behind him. And then that video goes viral Saturday going into Sunday, and he's on one of the final groups on Sunday. He never had a chance to win, but he was just so much fun to watch. It was literally like watching the club pro you'd see at your local course or your buddy going out there and just ripping it up with the top golfers in the world for four days. It was remarkable to watch. And then the coup d'etat, the cherry on top, was he hits a hole-in-one. So you have this whole story, this 46-year-old regular guy, club pro, qualifies for a major. That in and of itself is miraculous in some ways. And then not only that, but he plays really well, and he was under par for a while. And then he's paired with Rory, and he gives that interview. And then on Sunday, he puts one in on hole 15, a par 3. And not only was it a hole-in-one, it was a dunk. He dunked it in. Not a roll, didn't hit this or hit that or ricochet off this and roll in. It just dunked right in. And he had that same look on his face that he gave during that interview, that look of astonishment at what is happening to him. He had that look on his face after that hole-in-one, and he said the same thing. Because Rory, who was such a good sport, why wouldn't he be? But, you know, sometimes I'm sure you can end up golfing. If you're a club pro, you end up golfing with some of these guys, and they're not going to give you the time of day. But Rory was such a good sport and so good-natured about it. You could tell he was enjoying it almost as much as Michael Block was. And he hits him on the chest. He said, Roy, did that go in? Did that go in? He couldn't believe it. And sure enough, it just dunked in. He ends up finishing 15th, and that was the cutoff for him to get the automatic exemption for next year's PGA Championship. He had to hit a pretty tough putt on 18 to get that. He did that. And if he would have finished top five, he would, I believe, have gotten the exemption to the Masters next year and the PGA Championship. There are certain finishing levels. I want to say top three, he might have gotten a PGA Tour card for a year, something like that, or exemption to more of those tournaments. He may end up on the Live Tour. you got to believe, with all the money the Live Tour was throwing around, with how hot Michael Block's name is right now, you've got to believe they're going to offer him something, don't you? They're just throwing money around left and right, and there is no bigger name or no better story right now than Michael Block. You wonder if they're going to offer him a couple million dollars to go play on the Live Tour for a year. But he got right at that 15 marker. He had to be top 15 to get the exemption into next year's PGA Championship, and he got that. He finishes plus one for the tournament. He made a little short of $300,000. Now, look, we don't know Michael Block's background or what he makes as a club pro in Southern California. Maybe it's a good chunk of change. Definitely could be. But I would imagine three hundred dollars is at least a year, probably two years worth of salary in one weekend. And he's not an amateur, so he actually does get the check, and he got the big trophy for the highest amateur at the end of the tournament. It was just such a story that you would see in a Disney movie. Yeah, now Tin Cup. <laughs> but it's, it was just one of those things where you could tell he couldn't believe it as we couldn't believe it watching him. That's what made the story even sweeter. But the whole weekend belonged to Michael Block. We are all Blockheads now. In terms of the bets we had down, Xander Shoffley 
He made a little bit of a push, and he ends up, I think, tied for 20th or tied for 24th. But by the time we got to Sunday, as I said on Friday, what you want when you're betting on a golfer for every tournament or for every major, not every tournament, Mom, just just the majors, just the four, not the however many tournaments there are during the course of the year, 30, 35, 40. We're not doing every tournament yet. But I had Xander to win it, and you just want him to be there on Sunday. That's all you want when you pick one guy to win it. You just want them to either be in the lead, obviously, would be ideal. Have about a nine-shot lead on Sunday. That's the perfect world scenario. But if that's not the case, you just want them to be in striking distance. Three or four shots back, they have a chance on Sunday. And he really was not in position for that, although he doesn't finish in a bad spot. But we did cash Rory. Rory finished top ten. He finished seventh or tied for seventh. Cash that at plus 160. It's been a fruitful golf season. Had John Rahm to win the outright Masters, and we get the top 10 Rory finish at the PGA Championship on Sunday. But Michael Block is the story of the weekend, and he said, I actually kind of felt bad for him because they, of course, they had to interview him. They had a sit-down interview with him. I forget who the reporter was asking him questions, but you had to do the sit-down interview after the tournament. And this guy who has just been through the blender of, I cannot believe that I'm doing this and that I'm in the mix with these top golfers in the world. And he's got that whole bottle of emotion that's about to be let loose anyway. The crowd's behind him, big cheers every time he hits a putt. And then in the sit-down interview, they showed a video of his local course where he's the club pro at. And his son is videotaping the reaction of this watch party they had. And you can just tell he's already borderline going to lose it. He's trying his best not to cry on national TV. And then they play that video. And then the reporter says that she's been texting with his son. And his son said that this is the greatest moment of his life, of his son's life. And that it's the greatest moment of Michael Block's life. And it was just a overwhelming amount of emotion that hit him all at once. And it, I think he said, you could tell he was battling those tears, man. You could just tell he was fighting a war with those tears. And he said to her, well, thanks for making me cry on national TV. I just wanted the interview to end because they kept on asking him questions that he could just tell he wanted to have a moment to try to wrap his brain around what was all happening and to digest it a little bit. But, man, that was one we'll never forget. We will never forget Michael Block at the PGA Championship in 2023. What a run that was. And he said at the end of that interview, it's never going to get better than this. Because now what do you do? Where do you go from there? There will be rehashing of those stories before next year's PGA Championship. Or if he pops up at another tournament, I'm sure he will before then. But definitely before next May's PGA Championship, they're going to rerun a lot of that and talk about that story. How do you top it? How do you guess you get inside the top 15? You win the whole damn thing? But he said, essentially, there's no topping this. It's not going to get better than this. What a moment. And then Brooks Kepka, who actually won it, even though we all feel like Michael Block did win it, Brooks Kepka finally gets off the schneid. He had won so many majors in that short span of time in 2018, 2019, won four majors, and then just had a rough go of it since then. We've seen that happen, and that just seems to be something that happens in golf. Jordan Spieth had that two-year run where it seemed like he was winning everything, and two years before that, Roy McIlroy had that two- or three-year run where he was. it felt like he was winning every major. And Kepka was that way for a while, and just couldn't quite get himself locked in. And if you watch, I forget what the name of the show is on Netflix. I watched the first two episodes. I believe there are 10 episodes. And they're all about an hour long. And they follow one golfer every episode. Episode one was Justin Thomas. Episode two is Brooks Kepka. And you could just tell he was lost. During the course of the filming of that show, he was so frustrated with where his game was at and where his life was at and all the things going on. And he couldn't figure out what happened to his game and how he was going to find that stroke again. 
he looked like a lost person. And that was filmed four months ago. So for him to come from where he was, if you watch that episode, watch that show, and then to win the major championship yesterday, Hovland's going to win one eventually. He's been threatening. Maybe bet on him for the next one. <laughs> Should we bet on him for the – when's the next one? U.S. Open? Bet on Hovland for that one? Because he has been knocking at the door, but he had that really bad – I think it was hole 17, the double bogey, or 16. And that gave Kepka the breathing room. But to go from where Kepka was when they filmed that episode for Netflix's documentary for their special for their TV series – to back at the top of the mountain, you kind of feel good for Brooks, too. I know Brooks is a kind of a polarizing guy because of his charisma or his attitude and some of the things he says in interviews. And Live Golf is a part of that, too, for Kepka as well. It's a part of the narrative. But he gets his fit major, and that puts him in a different pantheon. That puts him – he's not on the Mount Rushmore, but it puts him in on a list, a short list of – all-time greats. I think we can put him on there with five major championships now as he gets the PGA Championship on Sunday. But what a weekend for him and for Michael Block. Unreal. All right, let's shift over to the NBA real quick. We're going to talk about the Brewers in a minute. I just have to say this about the Miami Heat. What the what? What is going on there? They win both games in Boston. Winning game one in Boston wasn't a huge shock just because they have proven, as we know as Bucks fans, that they are very good on the road in game ones, and the Heat are not good, or the Celtics are not good at home in game ones. Bucks beat them in game one in the second round last year in Boston. They just have not been very good at home in general, but especially in game ones. That one you can digest. Then they win game two, and they've got a 2-0 lead, and you figure the Celtics are going to get this back to even. They'll go to Miami, they'll win two games. This is still going to be a series. And they're the betting favorites to win on the road, down 2-0, and they go into Miami, and Miami just absolutely beats their brakes off. I cannot figure out what is with this Miami Heat team. If you had the Miami Heat and the 1992 Dream Team right now in a best of seven, I think I'd take Heat in six. They have so much confidence. Here's the thing with the Heat. And I guess if you wanted to rationalize as an NBA fan how this is happening, how an eight-seed, seven-seed, eight-seed is doing what they're doing, you could look back and say, look, this team was the number one seed in the East last year. And that Eastern Conference Finals last year went to seven games. And the Heat had a late lead in the fourth quarter in game seven and looked like they were on their way to the finals. And the Heat team this year is essentially that same team. If that's the hypothesis, that the Heat were the one seed last year, they didn't make the finals. They realized during the course of last year that the regular season doesn't matter as much as it used to in the NBA, and they're going to do their best just to make the playoffs the next year and see what happens if they take that sort of approach, and then they flip the switch. I guess I can I can accept that to an extent, but where I get diverted is the play-in tournament because if that's what they were doing, if the Heat were just playing with their food and they were doing load management and they were Cadillacing their way through the regular season – and then flip the switch. Wouldn't they flip the switch in the play-in tournament? If you watch that play-in tournament game against the Hawks, that Heat team was dead. And I watched it because I was fearful. I didn't think the Heat would beat the Bucks in five. But in that moment, the Bucks opponent was going to be probably the loser of that game. Because my assumption was the loser of that game would win the second game. And I will much would have preferred a matchup with the Hawks as opposed to the Heat because even though the Bucks swept the Heat in 2021, which now seems almost mind-boggling, how did that happen? How did they do that? Because that was essentially the same team in 2021. How did that happen? They get the game winner from Middleton in game one of that series, and then they beat their brains in the next three games in a sweep. 
if you look back at that 2021 title run, as crazy as the win in Game 7 in Brooklyn was, and being down early to the Hawks and coming back and winning that without Giannis and being down 2-0 in the finals and coming back and winning that, the more we see of this Heat team, the most shocking thing that happened during that title run might have been sweeping the Heat and blowing them out in three consecutive games. But anyway, because of the troubles the Bucks have had with the Heat outside of that sweep in 2021, I was hoping to avoid the Heat. And my hope in that moment, at that time two months ago, was that the Heat would win against the Hawks at home, and then they would go to Boston in the 2-7 matchup, and they'd give Boston a series. That was my hope, because at that point in time, we all still thought it was a boston Bucks collision course in the Eastern Conference Finals. And as a Bucks fan, not only did you want the more favorable matchup, which in my opinion was either the Hawks or the Bulls, you wanted that, but then you also wanted every round for the Celtics to have to battle. You wanted the Celtics drained by the time they got to the Eastern Conference Finals where you assumed the Bucs would be waiting for them. That's why I wanted the Heat to win that game. And I watched that game, and they had nothing. They had no legs. They had no energy. The Hawks were beating them to every loose ball. The Hawks looked like how the Heat looked now. So if the theory is that they were just lollygagging their way through the regular season, what happened in that game? And then... In the subsequent playing tournament game against the Bulls, they were three minutes away from being eliminated at home. They were down five points to the Bulls. They come back and barely win that game. And then they do what they do to the Bucks, And then they do what they do to the Knicks. And now they're just absolutely coasting over the team that was the odds-on favorite to win the finals for a lot of the year. They're up 3-0 and on their way to maybe a sweep of the Celtics. It's just hard to fathom. And these guys that were red hot shooting in the Bucs series, you can give them a series. But they haven't stopped. I swear to God, I turn on these Heat games, and I think I can count on one hand the amount of shots I've seen Max Struess, Caleb Martin, and Gabe Vincent miss. Who are these guys? Who are these people? They are playing with such confidence right now, I don't know how to explain it. They think every shot they take is going in. They could be down any deficit, and they've been down double figures. We saw it against the Bucks in games four and five. I don't really remember that they had that sort of a deficit against the Knicks. They lost a few games to New York, but that series was never in question. And they've been down in games one and two in this series against Boston late, and they come back and win. There's just this irrefutable belief in their brains that they're going to win. It doesn't matter if they're down 15. It doesn't matter if they're down 20. It doesn't matter if they're up by four or five. They just have that swagger right now of we're going to win this game. But it's one thing for that to last a series or a week. This is going on a month and a half now, and they've just got this belief in their players and their coach and Jimmy Butler, who's playing like prime Jordan or prime Kobe right now. It's I just find it very hard to explain how this team that was dead at home in the playing tournament is playing the way they are now. And not just winning series, close series. They're beating people up. They beat the Bucks in five, the Knicks in six, and they could sweep the Boston Celtics. The only redeeming quality of this has been watching Celtics Twitter implode. There is a real, how do you say it, schadenfreude? Is that how you say it? Schadenfreude, where you take pleasure in somebody else's failure, which is a big part of sports. You could argue the biggest part of sports. Is it schadenfreude? Hold on, let me see. Let's get the Google pronunciation. Schadenfreude. Ah, schadenfreude. Okay, schadenfreude. That has been a big part of Bucks Twitter because Celtics Twitter could not ham it up enough when the Bucks were losing to the Heat. You saw so many Celtics fans saying, imagine losing to the Heat in five. Imagine losing to the Heat in five. 
They couldn't get enough. They could not get enough of watching the Heat beat down the Bucks. Well, in the immortal words of Michael Scott, my, how the turntables. Well, how the turntable. How the turntable. I love how he asked that as a, as a question. How the turntables. How the turntables. Because now Bucks Twitter has been able to rehash all of those tweets that Celtics fans had during round one and throw it right back at him. And you could honestly make uh, an argument that of all the series the Heat have played, if we are now under the working assumption that the Heat are the best team in the East, and I don't know how you can refute it right now, of the series they've played, the Bucks have given them the best series of anybody, which also adds more fuel to the fire of what we talked about on Friday. Did the Bucks make an emotional decision firing Bud? And if Bud were still the coach right now, if they didn't cave in and they thought, you know what, we've got the whole offseason to figure this out, even if that was what they felt like they were going to do, all right, we're going to fire Bud at some point. But well, let's just wait. Let's take a breath and let's just see how things materialize in the next month or so. If Bud is still the coach, I don't know if they fire him. And I think I still believe that it was the right move. But I got to tell you, the more you watch the Heat roll and then you look back and say, the Bucks really played eight minutes of bad basketball in games four and five. And if they win those games, they're up on the Heat with home court coming back to try to win the series. They have given the Heat the best series of anyone so far that they have faced in this playoff run. I still think it was the right move, but boy, oh boy, it is getting very difficult. <laughs> it's if you if if you're a Bucks fan and you didn't want Bud fired, and there were plenty of those people. I'd say I think we even said on the Bud post firing Bud podcast that 70% it felt like of Bucks fans when that move was made were happy or not happy. I don't think you rejoice or throw a parade when somebody gets fired, especially a guy that brought you a championship and was the winningest coach in the NBA over the five years he was in Milwaukee. But 70% felt that was the move that needed to be made. And there was 25 to 30% that said, I think we may regret this. Well, if that percentage group of fans wanted any more points to back up the way they felt, I don't know. They, they've gotten it all. And if the Heat sweep the Celtics and that team falls in on itself like a dying star because they have big decisions to make. Now they're talking about firing their coach. And they've got two massive extensions they need to decide on with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And now all of Celtics Twitter is doing what Bucks Twitter did after they lost to the Heat in round one. Well, what can we do to get Dame Lillard? What can we do to get Nick Nurse? It's very funny to watch that they're all hypothesizing the same things that Bucks fans were trying to talk into existence after they lost to the Heat. How do we get Dame Lillard? Can we sign Jalen Brown and trade him for Dame Lillard? Everybody wants Dame Lillard. Dame Lillard is the cure-all to everybody's ills right now when the Heat are upsetting them in the playoffs. But they've got a lot of choices they're going to have to make in the offseason. It's just been a fascinating thing to watch play out. But yeah, if you're a part of that group of fans that didn't like the Bud firing and thought it was a bit hasty at the very minimum... Everything we've seen from this Heat team corroborates the way that you felt in the aftermath of the Bud firing. I still think it was the right move, but man, it is. It's becoming more of a question mark. It's at least an ellipses. When they fired him, it was a period. And for some, it was an exclamation point. But now we're at least dot, dot, dot. And I'm feeling a question mark, at least a parenthetical question mark at the end of it now coming on as well.
We'll see how it all shakes down when they hire the new coach and how things go over the next two-ish years or three years. If they win a couple championships or win another championship, then we know for sure it was the right move to make. If they bring in Monty Williams or they bring in somebody else and they don't win a title in three or four years and then Giannis's contract is up, then we may look back and say, well, I don't know. I don't know if firing Bud was the thing to do. Another popular name now that has cropped up is Chris Quinn, which I – can't argue with. Chris Quinn is the lead assistant for the Heat, and with the way the Heat are playing, most NBA fans would tell you before the year, if you told them to give you a list of the top three coaches in the NBA, almost every, not everyone, but almost every NBA fan, if you really watch the games, on that top three, you'd have Spo. He might be at number one, he might be at number two, he might be at number three, but if you ask any hardcore NBA fan, name the top three coaches in the league before the season began, Spo would be on that short list. That was another reason it was concerning for the matchup and another reason you wanted the Heat to go to Boston is because of how good of a coach he is. But with what they're doing now, you better believe the assistant coaches on that team are going to get picked off. I don't know if the Bucks interviewed Chris Quinn already or he's on the list of guys they want to interview, but that's another name to throw in there. I still feel like the direction is going to be Monty Williams. We talked about that on Friday. My buddy that works in the comm department for the Bucks, that's where he thinks that they are going to go ultimately. But... Yeah, the lead assistant on the Heat looking pretty good right now with what they're doing in Miami. Chris Quinn could be a name to watch. And now there's going to be a lot of jobs. That's the other thing, too, for the Bucs. I still believe the Bucs have the most desirable position to be in because of Giannis because you've got this freak of nature literally in the prime of his career, this year-in, year-out MVP candidate, and you've got the arena, and you've got a team that's in its championship window still, depending on what they do with the roster. I still think that's the destination the top coach would want to go, but now that Philly job's open with Joel Embiid and the reigning MVP there, and it looks like the Boston job is probably going to be open with the Tatum and Brown combo, the Bucks may have to move faster than they thought they were going to have to now that all of these top teams are getting KO'd by the Miami Heat and are subsequently firing their coach. All right, over in baseball, the Brewers get a much-needed Sunday win. They lose on Friday. Silver lining on Friday. Adrian Hauser looked sharp. Now, is that the guy we're going to get every game? Probably not. Do we need that from him every game? Probably not. Just give us 2021 Adrian Hauser. I think we talked about that a couple of podcasts ago. With all of the injuries in their starting rotation right now, if we can just get 2021 odd year Adrian, wasn't that the nickname we gave him? Because in the odd years, he's good. And in the even years, he's been pretty bad. But in 2021, he was 10-6 and with a 3.22 ERA. Give me that, Adrian. Give me a 10-6 and six record and an ERA in the mid to upper threes. That'll be fine by me. He goes toe-to-toe on Friday night with the staff ace for the Rays, McClanahan, and they just lose one nothing in a pitcher's duel, and the offense was dead again for the Brewers. But if you want to look back at that game and say, boy, you feel pretty good about Adrian Hauser. Six shutout innings against a very good offense on the road. Didn't play well Saturday in the 8-4 to loss. They salvaged the win on Sunday. Adamas goes deep. He's low-key not been very good this year. He is an OPS under 700. It's still early, and I have faith that he'll get things turned around to an extent. But remember when they got him from Tampa? That was two years ago yesterday. And he came to Milwaukee, and a big part of the Willie Adamas storyline was that he found it very hard to hit in Tampa. That's a dismal arena. The lighting's horrible. They've got those rafters where baseballs hit off of them left and right. If you hit one, it's a foul ball. If you hit another one in Tier 3, it's a home run. It's a disaster of a baseball park. 
And he always contended the lighting was really bad and his eyes just could not adjust. And the way he burst onto the scene at AmFam Field, Miller Park in 2021, seemed to back that up because he was hitting things hard. He was hitting laser beams left and right. He was so good in 2021, and he was okay in 2022. Of course, he had the home runs and the runs driven in. The average jumped off or dropped off quite a bit, 50 points. And now this year, he's barely above 200. The OPS is below 700. Still, he's an outstanding defender, but that bat is lost right now. He gets the opposite field home run, though, on Sunday. Rowdy has a two-run bomb. You're at a point with where the offense has been for Craig Council. I don't know that you can have Rowdy on the bench anymore. They have been benching him in lefty-lefty matchups where they can because his numbers against lefties are abysmal. But you're at a point with the offense over the last two or three weeks where you just cannot afford to have a power bat, even if it's a lefty matchup. You just cannot have that power bat on the bench. His OPS is just under 900, easily tops on the team. 11 home runs after that home run on Sunday. He's got to be in the lineup every day, and you just live with it. If he goes 0 for 5 against a lefty, so be it. You just can't have that power bat on the bench when you have been so lacking offensively lately. He hits the home run, and then who else went yard yesterday? Yelly had two hits. Am I missing someone? Did Brian Anderson go yard? Brian Anderson in the ninth inning yesterday. They shift him to third base. I don't know if you watched the game. Brian Anderson on the first out of the ninth inning on a high chopper ground ball to third. I would say it's on the short list of one of the best defensive plays I've ever seen at third base. That was a Tom Imansky, mayor of Web Gem City play. On the hop, on a run into home plate, he bare hands it, snares it out of the air, and in one motion throws it to the bag and just gets the runner for the first out of that ninth inning. I have not seen a better play at third base. And if I have, I can't remember it. That was elite defense from Brian Anderson. I think he had a home run, too. Devin Williams comes on for the multi-inning save. He continues to be one of the most reliable bullpen arms in Major League Baseball. He's only given up one run this year. He gets the save. Brewers get the 6-4 win. Pittsburgh lost. I believe St. Louis did beat L.A. yesterday. They actually win the series against the Dodgers. But here's the important thing. They go 2-4 and four on the road trip. I know I said on Friday on Friday's podcast. I want three and three, but given the matchup against the best team in baseball at their place, that was only the fourth loss on their home field this year for Tampa. That's it. They're 21 and four to say they're a difficult team to beat on the road is an understatement, but the Brewers do get it done on Sunday. But I said three and three would be tremendous. If you could do that by winning the series in Tampa. And then under my breath, I said, I'd take two and four and that's what we got. But Despite it being a bad road trip, when the Brewers left on the road trip, they were in first place. When they come home from the road trip, they're in first place. They're a game up on the Pirates. Yeah, the Cardinals all the way up to third place. You just know it. I mean, you know, right? You just know. We talked about this during the series against the Cardinals early last week. They're five games back now, so they've made up two and a half games in the last week. Cubs are five back. Reds now in last place, six back. But the Brewers are in first place as we enter play today. The schedule does not get any easier for them. The reigning champion Astros are in Miller Park or Ampham Field tonight. It's an elite pitching matchup. Corbin Burns and Christian Javier tonight. Brewers still TBD for tomorrow, and then Adrian Hauser will go on Wednesday. Then you've got four against San Francisco before you hit the road again to Toronto. The AL East. Everybody's over 500 in the AL East, and every team seems to be loaded. They go to Toronto then starting the day after Memorial Day, then to Cincy. Baltimore has been a revelation. They're another team that's 14 or 15 games over 500. They're at AmFam Field early in June before the A's visit 
on June 9th, 10th, and 11th. But it's a tough stretch of schedule, and they're just trying to survive the month of May right now. First of three with Houston starting tonight. It'll be a 641st pitch at AmFam Field. All right, I think that'll do it for us here. Oh, shout out, by the way, to the Milwaukee Admirals. I mentioned my wife and I went to our first ads game in probably a decade, one of the playoff games against Texas. They won game two. We were there for that one at Panther Arena or whatever they're calling it now. And then they go on the road and they get it done in game five, winner go home against Texas last night, a 4-2 to two win. So they're on to the conference finals in the AHL, the Calder Cup playoffs, for the first time since 2006. They play, who do they play now? Coachella Valley, like Coachella is in the music festival. They play Coachella, the Coachella Valley Firebirds, and it is game one on Thursday. Game two is on Saturday. Then they're back home middle of next week and into next weekend. We may have to get tickets. They play Saturday night, potentially, unless they sweep them or get swept. They would play game five at home on Saturday night, June 3rd. But shout out to them. That was a fun atmosphere that we got to be a part of for the round they were playing against Texas. And we may get tickets for this one, too. They're a step away from the Calder Cup Finals. All right, that'll do it for us here on your Monday. We'll chat with you Friday. Have a good work week.